0: Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. All right, everybody, welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Show, And have I got a fantastic guest for you today? We are here with Greg Satel, who is a multiple best-selling author, international keynote speaker. He's worked around the world, and he's also written for the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, Best Company, Barron's, uh, probably more. Uh, so clearly a, a real thought leader, not only in the U.S., but on an international basis. I came across his work a number of years ago. His first book, Mapping Innovation, was, I think, a really influential work and certainly something that I learned a lot from. And he's got a new book out called Cascades. We're going to talk about both of those things uh, and try to pump Greg for as much knowledge and insight as we can in the next 30, 40 minutes. So with that, please uh, welcome my guest, Greg Sattel. Greg, thank you for being here. And what else do you want to add to my introduction of you that the audience should know? Thanks for having me, Howard. One thing that, to be honest, frustrates me that people don't know
1: about me is that I actually spent most of my adult life running businesses and managing people. And that's something I took a lot of pride in until, of course, uh, we were discussing before the show, and maybe we'll point to it later, until the country I was living in blew up and I had to figure out something else to do, so... (laughs) I became this uh, thought leader type rather than a practitioner. But that's sort of where I cut my teeth actually
0: doing real things and and producing real value. Now, you've created real suspense for the audience here because they're probably thinking, what country blew up? (laughs) Why don't you give just a brief background on your experience in Eastern Europe? Because it's a very fascinating story.
1: Oh, funny story, actually, because I was working in New York. I was working for a big corporation. And somebody offered me a job to work for a business journal in Poland. I was doing national radio sales. And I looked at the guy in the office next to me. He was about 10 years older. He had a bigger salary, a longer commute, but was pretty much doing it the same stuff I was. And I said, well, I was a college athlete, so I never got the chance to to go abroad. And I figured, if I don't do this now, I was 27 at the time, I'll never get to do it. So I think I'll go out for six months, and it'll be an experience, and I'll come back. And I ended up spending 15 years spanning Poland, uh, mostly Poland and Ukraine, but also Russia and Istanbul. So it was, it
0: was a big adventure. Wow, fascinating. I've never been to those countries for the most part, but uh, I know my, three of my grandparents are from the, somewhere near Kiev. So one of these days, I, I got to get there. And the other one is probably near Odessa. Uh, Romania, actually, the other one is from uh, near, near Bucharest yeah. and Romania I've been to because we actually have an office in Brasov, Romania. Well, so let's talk about mapping innovation. I know we want to get to Cascades, but before that, it's just such a, an important work and one that I know is a, a few years old compared to your brand new book. But because so many people listening are trying to drive innovation and transformation at large companies maybe you want to just give a quick overview of what the book's about in case people want to go check it out. But then if you could share with us, what would be a few of the key insights that you think would be most pertinent to an executive at a large company who's challenged with trying to figure out how do I take a company that's not quite keeping up with the digital world today and facing probably challenges and resistance? What are some of the key practices from there that you might want to share
1: today? Well, first of all, and I can't stress this enough, My book is not old. It is timeless. (laughs) It's evergreen. Absolutely. I I agree. I think to understand mapping innovation, you have to understand, and this is true of Cascades as well, mapping innovation was born of a problem that I was trying to solve myself. So running all these companies in very, very difficult business environments over the years, and, and I'm sure your audience really understands this, there's always this incredible pressure to innovate. And I didn't have the first idea how to go about it. But one thing I noticed, whenever I looked, somebody had some great idea about innovation. And they said that was the way to do it. And then I looked at somebody else who was just as successful or even more successful, and they did things a completely different way. And so when I kept looking for like the secret, the holy grail of innovation, I would find something like design thinking. And you'd see, oh, well, Steve Jobs, he swears by it. And then IDEO has built this great practice around it. And Stanford has created an entire school around it. And that's so impressive. That really must be something. And then you sort of dig into it and you get into the nitty gritty. And it says, well, focus on your end users, what they want. And then you rapidly prototype and iterate towards a radically better solution. And you get so excited and you say, wow, that's fantastic. And then you go read Clayton Christensen and Innovator's Dilemma and Disruptive Innovation. And he says, that's exactly how good companies go out of business. They pay too much attention to their end users and they don't understand when the basis of competition changes. Well, how can both of those things be true? And then you have things like open innovation and lean startup. And it's just this like confused jumble. So I kind of set out to figure that out just practically because I think managing is the art of figuring out what to do. And it just seems so confused. And what I came up with is that innovation is really about solving problems. And there's as many different ways to innovate as there are problems you have to solve, types of problems you have to solve. So the key is really to classify what type of problem you have before you set out on picking a solution to that problem. And that's really at the crux of what mapping innovation is about, is about classifying problems and then using this innovation matrix that I developed to match that type of problem with
0: a strategy that is most likely to solve. Great. And can you give us one example of what would be like a type of problem and how you'd map that and maybe something even that's real from a project you've worked on if you can?
1: So one of my favorite stories from the book was uh, about breakthrough innovation, which I classified as a problem that's very, very well defined, but nobody can figure out how to solve it. And those, those problems are usually solved through some sort of open innovation strategy. So the story I told in the book was there was one of the big technology companies. They got a contract, a million dollar contract to develop a sensor. That could detect pollutants underwater, very very small concentrations, and they uh, so they got a team of really crack chip engineers and chip designers to work on the project. At their first initial meeting, they're sitting there sort of tossing ideas around for 45 minutes to an hour. Eventually, the marine biologist who was assigned to their group he comes in and drops a bag of clams on the table, and they all look up disturbed by the interruption. And he said, you see, these clams, they can detect pollutants underwater at very, very minute concentrations, just a few parts per million. And when they do that, they open their shells. So we don't need any super sophisticated chip design to detect pollutants. We just need a very simple, cheap sensor that can detect when the clams open their shells. And with that, they saved like $999,000 and they had the clams for dinner. Now, you would assume that chip design was the right domain for that problem. But very few chip designers would have ever come across that information. But any marine biologist would know that. So with that type of problem, when a problem stuck, it's usually because you've chosen the wrong domain. And there's uh, a bunch of platforms now, but the first one was called InnoCenter, built around that idea. It was actually spun out of Eli Lilly because they had all these chemistry problems that they couldn't solve. So they had this idea, let's put them online. And they immediately found a couple of things. First, well, a lot of these problems that had been around for years were getting solved in three to six months. And second, they almost were never solved within the domain from which they arose. So if it was a chemistry problem, the chemists weren't the ones who solved it because they had great chemists inside, Eli Lilly, who would have solved it by then. It was some adjacent field, like a biologist or a physicist. So if you classify that problem right, if you think it's a basic sustaining innovation problem where you, ha- you understand the problem and the domain, you would just put chip designers on that problem. But because they threw in, they said, well, maybe we need some extra domain knowledge. They were able to solve it very, very quickly.
0: I love that story. That's fantastic. It reminds me, even in my book, one of the things we talk about there in terms of things like brainstorming groups is just the importance of diversity. Sometimes you can't even figure out what kinds of diversity will be valuable on a team, but just having diversity of age and experience and education and domain expertise uh, levels within the organization, all these types of things usually gets you farther faster.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing. It's also a bit tricky, right? Because if it was a typical chip design, having a marine biologist coming and dumping clams on the table, <laughs> to get, classifying that type of problem. For instance, this is an operational problem. And there's decades of research that show that people that are more homogenous groups, they will come to a consensus faster and be more confident in their answers. So for operational groups, sometimes diversity can get in the way, actually. The Mm -hmm. problem is they're also more likely to be wrong. Where diverse groups, it's much harder for them to come to consensus. They're not nearly as confident, but they're more likely to be right and they're going to come up with better
0: solutions to tough problems. Got it. And that's the mapping point, that depending on the nature of the problem, like you said earlier, more diversity might be more helpful or more diversity might just slow you down, depending on if it's the type of problem where you need a breakthrough solution or the type of problem where you're just trying to optimize some existing process, where probably a lot of subject matter knowledge about that one thing is mainly what you want. Right. So from a management perspective,
1: eventually you're going to have to decide whether you break up that high-performing team. Or do you put that high-performing team on a new problem? And that's why it becomes very, very important to say, what are we asking these people to do? Are we asking them to execute very efficiently, or are we asking them to solve new types of problems and be creative and innovative? And that makes a big difference on whether you say, let's break up that team, or let's give it new blood, or let's just let them run. They're doing good at what they're doing.
0: Awesome. Great insights. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, Greg is going to talk about his new book, Cascades, how to create a movement that drives transformational change. It's a fascinating look at how the principles that drive transformational change in society, like political revolutions and cultural revolutions, have many characteristics that can be applied to transformational change in the enterprise in ways that they often aren't. So he's really picked up on some new, interesting insights that he's proven successful in practice. So when we come back, Greg is going to tell us all the secrets from that. And meanwhile, you might want to go over to Amazon and pick up Mapping Innovation. I'm sure you can find it quickly there because that is also a great book. We'll take a quick break, come back, and we'll talk about Cascades.
2: Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started.
0: Welcome back. My guest today is Greg Sattel. He told me before to pronounce it, all I have to do is say, it's like, Sattel me something. So I'm now going to ask Sattel me about your new book, Greg, your new best-selling book, Cascades. How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. I've been reading it myself. It's fascinating because it brings together insights that Greg has from looking at non-obvious places, change within society and politics that have characteristics that he has applied successfully to driving enterprise change, such as digital transformation. So Greg, can you give us an overview of the book? And then we'll pick a couple of areas where you can give the listeners some real actionable learnings from the work you've done to create this
1: I think a good place to start is actually with mapping innovation, because in mapping innovation, I talked about how innovation is never a single event. It's always a process of discovery, engineering, and transformation. And I think what people overlook is how difficult that transformation piece is. And this, I think, comes to the work that you do. I mean, you're not out there discovering you know, new physical theorems or, or anything like that. And you're not designing chips. When the technology comes to you, it's already been developed. But you know how difficult it can be to get that type of change, even change that already works and has been invented, to get that change adopted and scaled throughout an enterprise. And one of the things that I really like, if I, we can just switch and talk about your book. My favorite topic. And it really is a great book. For me, it's, it's almost like Kotler for the digital age. But one of the things I really liked about it is when you talk about digital transformation, you say transformation, digital transformation is really hard. Change, people don't like it. And if you look, and I did a, a bit of research on the history of change within enterprises. And one of the things I found was that the idea of change has changed. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when we talked about change, We're usually talking about changes in a physical asset, but today we talk about change in intangible assets. We talk about changes in behavior, changes in processes, getting people to change what they do, how they think, what they believe. They're going to resist that. And that's why Cascades is very, very different. I think change management over the years, the common assumption is change is really a communication exercise. Change is inevitable. Change is going to happen. We need to innovate or die. So, so the real task is to create a sense of urgency around the change and to explain to people why it's important. Well, if change is painful and it's important and it's going to impact people, there's going to be a certain amount of people who hate the idea of this change and they're going to work to undermine it in ways that are dishonest, underhanded and deceptive. That is the first principle. That needs to be it's true. <laughs> design constraint. If there was no resistance to change, it wouldn't be difficult. So if you take change to be a communication exercise and your first step is to do some kind of mass communication campaign, you're just alerting those people who hate this change that they better get started on undermining it or else it might actually happen. And one of the advantages of my experience of going through something like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine is that when you're out on the street in Kiev and you're trying to bring freedom to a country that's in a, an authoritarian regime, the idea of resistance to change isn't abstract at all. Nobody needs to tell you that. You're worried about getting shot. So that idea of resistance is, is very much up front, but there have been decades, really over a century of learning and experience of how to overcome even the most fierce resistance. And I know you do great work, and I know you've driven some great transformation, but you never had resistance like Mandela or Gandhi or King or any of those. So the essence of Cascades is saying, look, there's this repeatable model. Uh, I eventually, I met my friend, Sirja who overthrows countries for a living. So he does this in over 50 countries, time after time, this repeatable model for driving change under the most fierce resistance and opposition.
0: Now, is that usually a fixed price or more of a time and materials type project?
1: <laughs> but funny enough, it's very similar to what you do. He comes, he does a workshop, he trains people, and then he consults for them. So there is this kind of a kickoff with a core team. And then he helps Shepard and he did it. His first revolution was with Milosevic in Serbia. He's Serbian. But then he brought it to Georgia and Ukraine, where I encountered his work first and Egypt and Burma and Zimbabwe and, and all these places. But what I think people find so compelling about Cascades is, And what I found compelling enough to write a book about it is you see these frameworks that have been around for decades, and you can immediately realize, wow, that would really be useful in an enterprise. But nobody's really made that connection yet. And that's what makes the concept so powerful. The idea of instead of having this communication-led change, creating an
0: actual movement for change within your organization. Yeah. Well, it's funny listening to you say that. It makes me think it proves the point we were talking about earlier, which is to say you bring to your work a diversity of experience that most consultants in this space don't have, which is you lived through a country that went through a revolution. So you've you've got a different first, perspective I, on change. And I think what I made clear in the book is
1: I didn't have the first idea what was going on or what happened, and nobody else did either. And it took me really 15 years to figure out what happened in those three or four months
0: in Kiev that I experienced personally. And then when you come to the table to talk about how to address address resistance to change, you've got this whole set of references and knowledge that most people don't have. And that's, of course, a lot of what you wrote out of the book, plus the additional research. So I love it as a case study in the value of people with a different non-typical background that can bring a different way of thinking to a problem. So can I tell you one of the most gratifying things when I was researching the book? Because I would be
1: talking to my friend, Sir Ja, and at one point, I had a conversation with Sir Ja, who is this lifelong revolutionary, and immediately switched to a gentleman who was one of Lou Gerstner's, a guy named Irving Vladovsky-Berger, who was one of Gerstner's key lieutenants in the 90s, ran e mm-hmm. At IBM. At IBM, right. And having those two conversations back to back, it was almost like Irving was finishing Sir Ja's sentences. That's how closely the two were related. It was almost spooky. And what I found is when I went to validate these concepts with people who've been involved in organizational or institutional transformations, I would ask them sometimes, did this happen? And they'd say, you know what? It did. Is that a normal thing? Because I thought that was just something strange that happened to us. And it's amazing how consistent some of the behavior is. And almost everybody who encounters it says, thought it was something unique, when actually it's something that almost always happens. It's something you can
0: almost set your watch by. And that's huge because if you're trying to be successful in a battle, right, which is the analogy we're talking about here, knowing what the enemy is likely to do is going to make it a lot, a lot easier for you to be successful because you can be properly prepared
1: exactly the point that needs to be. We talk about surviving victory. You need to talk about one of the things we ask in our workshops is how would an evil person, not a normal, reasonable, nice person, but how would an evil person work to undermine the change you're trying to achieve? Once you start thinking in that way, it opens up, oh, wow, if I was trying to undo this change, Well, I I would, uh, well, well, they wouldn't do, well, maybe they would. (laughs) And then you can start thinking about how you can plan for that. Yeah. And when you see successful revolutions, and I I talk about this some in the book, like
0: Milosevic, they had completely gamed him out. He never had a chance. We do a lot of workshops as well, and I know you do. So I I like what you're describing. And certainly that's always a very powerful type of prompt for some kind of a breakout group in a workshop where you ask them to put yourself in the mind of of another entity, whether it's an opponent or something else. And I, just for fun, I would say if we were doing that in a workshop, we'd probably like hand out black hats and like little mustaches or something and say, okay, you know, you are the evil one, right? Imagine you are a diabolical villain. Now, what would you do just to get that person even more associated with, okay, I'm going through this imaginary pretend exercise. I always enjoy doing stuff like that, letting people enjoy fully what it is to be. And of course, I think that makes a lot of sense to look at it that way. And this is one of the things I I cover in my book is there are actually a lot of non-evil reasons why people resist change. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. It's a problem. But nevertheless, there's all kinds of reasons why people, from their perspective, aren't being evil but are just doing the right thing. And of course, we see this in our politics today, right? The people that one group thinks are evil are really just doing But from their perspective on the world, looks like the right thing to do. But if you want to succeed, and sometimes it's called saving the company versus having the company go out of business. So it's critical. It's life or death. If you want to succeed, you, of course, have to overcome that resistance, whether it's viewed by the resistors as an evil plot or whether it's viewed by them as they're the good ones and the change is evil. You know, in any case, you have to overcome it.
1: I think that's so true. I mean, in my In a lot of the funny places I worked, I I worked with some people who, objectively, you would consider some pretty bad people. And what What I learned over the years, though, was that nobody thinks of themselves as bad. Some people see the world as like this massive prisoner's dilemma, and they refuse to be fools, but they don't see themselves as bad. And one of the interesting things, I know this isn't related to our our discussion, but one of the interesting things I found was in corrupt environments, your best strategy is to be incorruptible yourself, because then you take yourself out of the game. It's not a guarantee, but it's the best odds you'll ever get.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, yes, I I totally agree this topic of being uh, willing to recognize that you're going to face a lot of resistance and seeing the resistors as almost a military enemy and, and thinking that, you know, it's funny. One of the things that we often say, I think we published a meme about this summer, which is that if you doubt that there's resistance to change at your company, just think about it this way. Whatever change you are envisioning, if there weren't resistance, it would have already happened. Well, everybody's, everybody's excited about change, but it's
1: their change. Right. People <laughs> love their change. What they don't like is other people's change. Yes, that is- sure
0: imposed on them. and and one of the things we always talk about is if you can you know it's like it takes a village you know it's like if you can somehow get your change to be their baby all of a sudden they're gonna support it there's a great cartoon that i i love i have it in some deck somewhere i, I didn't create it but there's a guy behind a podium and he says to this audience of people who wants change and everyone's hands shoot up you know and then he says who wants to change and nobody's hands go up <laughs>
1: Well, one of the things we, we work on in our workshops is this idea of co-optable resources. So rather than a bunch of stuff that you want people to do in order for this change, you're giving them resources in order to make the change that they want in order to empower them. A great example was at Experian where they wanted to drive people towards a cloud transformation. And this was something really, very important for their customers. But in the beginning, they didn't mandate it. Rather, they set up something called the API Center of Excellence. And so that product managers who wanted to embrace the cloud could get resources and help to solve the problems they wanted to solve. And once they gained traction, that became the basis of a massive, massive enterprise-wide transformation that was completed in less than three years, which for a big transformation like that, usually companies bring in somebody like Accenture or somebody like this to drive that transformation for them. And five years later, they find out that it didn't work. So that yeah. idea of empowering people to take ownership of the change is is really very effective.
0: Yeah, and making sure, as you said, that you've aligned, you understand why the change is good for them. You know, it reminds me uh, of a change we tried to drive with a a large nationwide insurance company. It's already probably seven or eight years ago, this story, maybe more. But we were trying to move from green screen systems that insurance agents would use to quote auto and home insurance policies to like a more modern web-based system. And you'd think everyone would want that, right? Oh, my God, you know, these old green screen systems. But the reality is the people, and it wasn't so much the insurance agents, but it was their support staff. Well, it took like a year to learn to use one of these green screen systems with the 300 cryptic commands and F keys you had to learn. But once you learned it, job security, baby, because good luck for that, you know, office, the insurance office to find someone else who knows how to use this crazy convoluted system. So they had a a reason to resist a much easier system that anybody could be taught to use in a, you know, in under a week. There's still a learning curve. Yes, but a week instead of, you know, a year. (laughs) already put in the year they hadn't put in the weekend well i see your point yes exactly right exactly for people who'd already put in the year their year was now sort of wasted and 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 it was much harder for them to negotiate a raise because they knew that their boss could say well i can find someone to replace you much more quickly than i could but what we did there was we found that for these agents or it was really the support staff we're like what about this system really makes their lives better and we discovered it was one feature And it was like this, what we thought is the creator system, a relatively minor part of the system, which was in the old world, if you quoted someone's auto policy, the system would mail you your card, you know, to go in your glove compartment and you'd get it in the mail a few days later. But a lot of customers were unhappy with that and they got a lot of flack. Like I've just started my policy. Can't I get my, what if I get pulled over? They said, you know, so this system allowed you to print the card in the office, just a piece of paper. But that was transformational for them. And it was such a small part of what this system was meant to do and the business benefits that it was driving. But once we had identified that, every piece of communication, everything we talked about led with not this amazing new system that's easy to use because they hated that, but rather this amazing new system that lets you print the card in your office. And that made a huge difference. So I'm so glad you said that because it gets into something I talk about in the book and we work on a lot
1: in the workshops is this idea of shared values. You know, in that case, they assume the shared values was ease of use. But what makes people passionate about an idea are differentiating values. I think, for instance, the agile community, anybody talks about agile development, immediately they want to talk about the agile manifesto, which makes people passionate inside the community. But to people outside the agile community, It sounds a little bit crazy, the Agile Mm -hmm. Manifesto, Mm -hmm. and people are so fanatical about it, where the shared values are things like better projects, done faster and cheaper. And in the case of your platform, the shared value is doing things for the customer. Those support staff, that's their job. It's a service job. So show them how they can do something for the customer. And, And what we find, and we do this exercise a lot in our workshops is that we ask people to identify a shared value. We say, what does your opposition say? What do the people who hate this idea? Because they're trying to convince the same people that you are. So in a situation like that, for instance, when we do agile transformations, one of the objections we get a lot is that agile is all about process and not about people. So it's really, really important when you're doing an agile transformation to focus on what it does for people, how it helps unlock creativity, rather than all of these little agile things that seem a bit funny first. And I imagine with your example, when you talk to those people, their passion for the customer really
0: gets. Yes. And 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 that's one of the reasons why we're such big advocates of doing customer research, or if you're creating a system for agents or customer, then they're your customer essentially, right? They're the user, user research. Because if you'd have asked me as a product development person when we were working on that system to predict how the users of the system would feel about making it easier to use, I think I would have gotten it wrong. I would have said, well, duh, of course, they're going to be happy that we've made the system easier to use. Like that seems like almost obvious. And then when we go out and interview and research people, we realize, actually, it's not something that they're particularly happy about. They like the old hard to use system for reasons that benefit them. So I'm always try to have humility about my likely ability <laughs> to forecast with somebody else. It's good to try to put yourself in their mindset. Absolutely. And though. To recognize that there's a real margin of error there. And sometimes you got to go talk to them and you discover that there's another angle that you wouldn't have thought of because, well, you know, you're not them. No substitute for asking good questions.
2: 100%. Winning digital customers, the antidote to irrelevance has been called the must-have guide to saving your company and is available now for Kindle, Nook, and Apple Books or in hardcover. Visit wdc.ht order to get your copy today.
0: Well, before we run out of time, I want to get to this final topic that you alluded to earlier, but I, I want to unpack it, ask you to unpack it a little more, which is the idea of surviving victory. Certainly, I've seen in my uh, years of doing digital transformation, there's a lot of emphasis on the big pitch. You know, we often get brought it as a company to help develop the vision, develop the concept, develop the budget, develop the business case, and go to the CEO, board of directors, whoever it is, and get the funding, get the approval so we can do the big project. And what I've, kn- what I've learned, though, and, and, and I, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this, is you're not home free <laughs> because lots of projects get started and get canceled. And the point that you made about your enemies, you know, I, when, when we started talking the other day, I was telling you, I, I did a, a live cast recently called How to Sabotage Digital Transformation. And it was a little tongue in cheek. But what I was trying to do is describe the ways that people sabotage, not mainly to help the saboteurs, although I like to help people. So if it helps saboteurs, you know, I guess that's OK but mainly to help the people who are the anti-saboteurs know what their enemies' uh, strategies are likely to be. But um, one of the strategies is if you can't stop it from happening because it's got too much momentum, just wait till it starts and essentially nitpick it to death because something's going to go wrong. It always does in big transformational projects. And then all you have to do is say, well, we tried. It's time to put it out of its misery and then go on that campaign. So. I love the fact that you talked about the similar idea, but I think you had some other different insights about it that I really found interesting, which is you think the victory is the end, but really it's just the beginning. And then you have to figure out how to survive the victory. I would love for you to add to that or unpack any other details about this concept. Well, if I can just throw in another concept. Sure. Which
1: is called the, the keystone change. Um, so when you start change, you want to sh- it's similar to the idea of a minimum viable product, if people are familiar with lean startup. It's got a lot of differences as well, but the similar thing is you want to shrink that change down, that initiative down so that failure won't kill you. And the example I used in the book was uh, Gandhi's Salt March, but this idea of a clear and tangible goal that involves multiple stakeholders and paves the way for future change. So shrinking that down so that an initial success will help you, but an initial failure won't kill you. Instead of trying to sell people on change, you're starting with people who are already enthusiastic about the change. That's where you always want to start, not with people who hate the change. The concept of surviving victory is really a big part of it is just being aware that when you get that first victory, that's not the end. I mean, we thought in 2004 in the Orange Revolution, we had won. Obviously, we didn't, which is why there was another revolution 10 years later in Ukraine. The problem is that transformation and change, true transformation, not just a little shift, but a real paradigm shift in the way you do things, it is always built on shared values. So you never want to make your transformation contingent on any particular person platform, persona, project, it always has to be about shared values. Again, agile transformations are a great example about this. Agile transformation is never about agile. It's always about becoming a high-performing organization. Similar to your example, software is never about software. It's about serving the customer. So rooting that change in shared values rather than any particular technology or project or person or political campaign or whatever it is, always stay laser focused. And whenever you get into trouble, come back to those shared values is the way you drive
0: change for the long term. Fantastic. Well said. And a critical point. I absolutely agree. And uh, more on that can be found in Greg's book, Cascade, available everywhere, as well as his earlier book, his uh, timeless classic, Mapping Innovation. Uh, Greg, if anyone wants to learn other than the obvious easy way of Googling you uh, or, uh, you know, just looking for your two uh, tremendously um, influential books on Amazon or wherever you like to get books from. Anything else uh, people should know about ways they can uh, learn more about your consulting work, your workshops, or any of the other things that you do for companies? Either one of my websites, gregsattel.com,
1: digitaltonto.com. You can always connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you're ever in Philadelphia, the best cheesesteak in town is on me.
0: So (laughs) Wow. Well, be careful now of offering something like that. You might have to give away a lot of (laughs) cheesesteaks. Nobody ever comes to Philly. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, uh, uh, please join me in thanking my guest, Greg Sattel. Awesome, awesome information. Thank you all for listening. And I will see you next time on the Winning Digital Customers show.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal best-selling book that inspired the podcast.